Hey, my name's Josh. If you're visiting, I'm the lead pastor here. Really glad that you're here. Um, we are going to be continuing uh, in our study in the book of Romans. Uh, we've been, uh, for the last few weeks, looking at Romans chapter 8, which is a very important chapter uh, in the scripture because it's a, a robust explanation of the role of the Holy Spirit and his activity uh, in our lives. In the last two weeks, we kind of looked at life in the spirit, but what I want to talk about today is what does it mean to be motivated by the spirit? A lot of people have questions around, uh, around this, this tension that we feel of salvation coming to us as a free gift, uh, that the gospel isn't about climbing a ladder, that it's about coming to the cross where we meet a God who has come down to earth. He's come down and met us in the depths of our depravity. That God's elective love is that he chooses to love sinners in their sin. But we need to remember that God doesn't just simply choose to love sinners in, this, in, his, in their sin because he is a holy God and he's not content to leave us there. That he wants to actually lift us out. He wants to, he wants to transform the way that we live. And I think that this is an important component of the Christian life, it's what we call sanctification. But there's a lot of confusion around sanctification and it is easy to uh, try to accomplish in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit. And I think that as a spirit-filled community, my desire for Door of Hope, when I believe God's desire is, is that we would learn more and more what it means to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit uh, as the Spirit utilizes us as conduits by which He makes Jesus known through our community and through our lives individually. I want to just begin with the story. You know, when I was um, little, my mom divorced my father when I was one, and uh, she didn't remarry again until I was about to go into first grade. And when I was four years old, we moved into an apartment uh, building uh, in Longview down by the um, warehouse or paper mill. And I remember the apartment building was on this slough. You know what a slough is? It's basically, it's, you know, it's kind of cool. People like to live on water. <laughs> this just happens to be water that's brackish and has really, really large rodents called nutria that swim around in it. As kids, we called them white trash beavers. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, to combine that with, the, with the, the paper mill, which consistently spewed a certain scent into the air that reminded me of a town inhabited by demons with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and so it's very, it's very, I just want to paint a very clear picture of my childhood. Uh, one of the most sad moments was when my fire truck that I had just gotten for Christmas was mysteriously thrown into the middle of the slough like a week after I got it, and I remember crying about it. But what really terrified me at that season was that I had a babysitter who had a high school-aged son who thought it would be fun to torment me by telling me that when I would go to sleep at night, the devil would come through the floorboards and get me. And that created the beginning of night terrors for me as a little boy. And I remember I would wake my mom up almost every night. I would be in a sweat and I, in my mind, the devil did come through the floorboards and he came and he taunted me every night. And my mom, to, she realized that at some point I've got to, 
I've got to cast these demons out of this kid's room or I'm going to lose my mind because she could only sing to me so many times close to you by the carpenters in the middle of the night, which she used to sing to me every night. She would rub my damp head as I was trying to calm me down. And she's like, when the angels got together. You know that song. Uh, <laughs> that also is a mysterious song filled with all sorts of secret power. <laughs> but I remember the night that she brought home from work a painting. And the painting was by this Austrian guy named Hans Zatka. And he went by, um, he went by Zabateri and he painted all these really weird sentimental pictures of angels. And you probably have seen it. The painting is, is this kind of Germanic angel with the flowing blue and white robes and she has long golden hair, and these giant wings. And she's hovering over a bridge, a rickety bridge that two children are holding hands walking across. You guys ever seen that painting? And, and in this painting, my mom, I remember she just said, this isn't your guardian angel, it's a picture of your guardian angel. Your guardian angel is actually here with you, but the, the picture is to remind you that, that nothing can hurt you, nothing can get you, there's someone that's with you. God has given you a guardian angel, Josh. And, and I don't know why, but there was just something in me that just believe that, that there is, that this picture was a reminder that the devil couldn't get me and I stopped having night terrors. And the reason I tell you that story is because even as, as, as we become adults, we learn very quickly that life is not feasible on our own. That no matter how gifted you are, no matter how self-sufficient you might be, that when scripture declares it's not good that man be alone, it's something we need to take very seriously. That like myself as a child, we all need someone to help us. My mom was a conduit of that help. She almost in many ways became a, a visible reflection of God's gracious compassion and patience. Uh, but I just think of that, the terms as like, we, you know, we've, you remember those, oh, that's why those TV shows like Touched by an Angel were so popular, is that we want to believe um, there's something in us that tells us that what we see is not all that there is, and that there is supernatural help. But where those shows come up short, and that painting comes up short, is that we don't need the help of angels, although we are told that angels are ministering spirits, uh, we need God's very spirit within us. And Jesus said to his disciples in, his up, in the upper room the night of his betrayal, he said, he said, listen, it's good that I go to the Father, for when I go to the Father, I will send to you another helper, another comforter. It's the Greek word paraclete. It literally is teacher or helper, helper or comforter, and, and, and the Holy Spirit embodies all of those things. In fact, he said, the Spirit is already with you, and I believe what he was speaking of is himself, for Jesus himself in, in the incarnation, when he walked on the earth in physical flesh, he was the embodiment of what the Spirit-filled life looks like. And so he says, the Spirit is already with you because I'm with you and the Spirit is within me. But what does he say? But he will be in you. And what he was talking about is that the whole purpose of my coming is what I am moving to in the next day, and that is the cross of Calvary. Because the cross, through his death and resurrection and ascension, you remember what he said to the disciples on the, night, on the day that he ascended uh, to the right hand of the Father? He said, go and wait for the coming of the promised one. And the disciples went back to the upper room after they watched Jesus ascend, 
And, and they prayed and they prayed until the day of Pentecost when we're told the Holy Spirit came upon them and the Spirit appeared as like tongues of fire, like a, a rushing wind, and they were filled with the Spirit of God and it blew them out of the room into public. And, you know, I heard a, 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 a man once say, without the Spirit of God, we'll never leave the upper room. We need help. We need God in us to be witnesses of God himself. And this is the promise of scripture and this is why I think it's important that we take time to talk about what it means to be a spirit-filled people because I just want you to know that scripture is utterly clear. Our battle is not against flesh and blood but it is against principalities and the rulers of this age, that there is a spiritual realm. And this is why we are told very specifically that we are to test the spirits because there are deceiving, deceptive spirits that are always at play, always at work within, the, within God's body. In fact, the greatest work the enemy does against the church is not from without. It's not from outside of our, our greatest threats are not those people out there. The greatest threats are the, de the deceptions that the enemy works within God's people. And I think that this is why it's important for us to know what it means to test the spirit. It's important for us to know who the Holy Spirit is so that we know that the spirit that we are listening to is the spirit that is pointing us to Jesus again and again and again. So as we considered life in the spirit, what it means to be spirit controlled, I want you to now see how we can become motivated, how the sanctification of the believer's life by the spirit's presence in our lives works. Beginning in Romans chapter eight, verse 12 and 13, we see first of all that to be born again means that we are now indebted to the spirit and dead to the flesh. Remember, Paul always utilizes flesh uh, in a kind of a twofold reality that we live in a fallen world with fallen bodies and with fallen minds, and that flesh speaks of the, the sinful reality that is at play in, in, in the cosmos as we know it. Jesus himself entered into sinful flesh without sinning, that he took upon himself the weakness of the human experience, and that reality of flesh is a civil war that we are consistently dealing with for the flesh is always at war with the spirit and when we think about the flesh we can think about the old life uh, the old man the old woman that does seem to have a miraculous way of resurrecting itself all the time but here we see it says therefore brothers and sisters we have an obligation but it's not to the flesh in other words you're no longer the ruler of your own destiny you are no longer your own boss. You are not to be your own God, is essentially what he is saying. And he says, he says, it's not to the flesh to live according to it. We're not to be driven by our appetites. We're not to be driven specifically by just our senses, by what we can see and feel and touch, what, what we can engage in. No, our life is not our own. And this is a very challenging concept in our modern culture, which is always driven, American ideology is driven by a kind of a, an ability to rise up, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and overcome, that we are, we are the descendants of, think about 
how crazy our ancestors had to have been to leave Europe and come to the States, many of them dying. The, the entrepreneurial spirit in those that settled America is, is pretty much an untouchable reality. I, I, was, I read a thing once that said, that's why America is the, is the hub of ADD. It took ADD people to settle this country. <laughs> it was like just an over-the-top distractibility and, and overconfident um, movement that says, oh, it's not a big deal to you know, take a carriage a, across mountains. Uh, you know, it's like, who were these people? Uh, but the fact is, is that it's built into our DNA as Americans, and really it's just built into the DNA of human existence, this belief that I am the master of my own universe, that I have the right to define for myself what is right and what is wrong. But that's not what Paul says. He says, listen, we're not, we're not to live with an obligation to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And this is the principle, is that whoever sins is a slave to sin, and the wages of sin is what? Death. And he says this is, this is the outcome of living according to the flesh, is that, is that death is the inevitability. But if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so what Paul is saying is that God has not just simply saved us, but he has actually come into us, redeemed us, regenerated us. This is why Jesus said, unless one be born again, they will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It is what we call the new birth. And this is actually a non-negotiable when it comes to being in a right relationship with God. We cannot know the living Christ unless the living Christ actually come into our lives. Lots of people say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but that does not necessarily mean that you have been born again. It says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord, and what that means, that, that's, that says something. It actually entails something solid, which means to say Jesus is Lord is to say I am not. To say Jesus is Lord is to say he's the ruler. To say he is Lord is to insinuate or declare that he's alive. And it says, whoever confesses with the lips of Jesus Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. But what we need to understand around sanctification is salvation always has a threefold reality. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. And so salvation for us is the sanctifying work of the Spirit as we daily surrender that in, we are indebted to the Spirit. We surrender to the Spirit so that the Spirit can each day put to death in us the things that are unworthy of him. Now this is why I always say that the most dangerous prayer that one can pray at any given moment is, Lord, do whatever it takes to make me a man, a woman after your heart. And are we willing to give that kind of surrender to Jesus? Because it is kind of like walking up to a precipice, isn't it? Because there are times when God puts, convicts us of things, asks us to lay things down, or tells us to pick things up. And, and there's a, that stepping out in faith. And I always say that stepping out in faith is, as Alan Redpath said, stepping out into the dark onto a rock. And, and the power of the Spirit is that the Spirit actually creates in us a new capacity it puts us in a new environment where we're now right with God, but it also gives us a new capacity by which we can actually live the crucified life. I was actually kind of bummed. I got a call from my 
publisher or an email from my publisher um, and the editor said, you know, um, the sales team at Penguin are, um, are uh, struggling a bit with the title of your book. Um, and I'm like, oh no, here we go. They said they weren't going to change and mess with anything. But the book is called The Good Death. And they're like, he's like, oh, people keep saying they don't get it. And I'm like, well, if they're not believers, of course they don't get it. But it's like, and so he's like, they keep asking if it's about euthanasia. And I'm like, I'm like, kind of, like euthanasia of the, of the flesh. <laughs> but it's also about resurrection. It's about resurrection. I'm like, the good death is essential. It's the crucified life. It's dying again and again and again. A thousand deaths, as many as it takes that we might experience the resurrection life. Every death, what I call a good death, is, is a, a, a divine blow, a fatal blow to one arena of our existence uh, that actually is hindering our ability to know Jesus intimately. This is why I, I'm working through the statements of the cross. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing, what's the fatal blow? What's the good death? It's the death of innocence. He's saying, you're not innocent. That's a death blow. But what's the, what's the other side of that? The resurrection life comes through the death of innocence becomes the birth of forgiveness. And so I think that, that I hold tenaciously. I said, no, I am not comfortable changing the title. Um, I, and I, I think that good death works. And I'm like, if I'm totally pushed, I might be willing to call it treasures of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm not sure is going to confuse them less um, as I really thought about it. Um, uh, that's Isaiah 45. I will give you treasures of darkness. I love that verse. Uh, that's going to be my second book. Uh, if I can ever finish the first one without... I just keep writing electronic songs every time I go to work on the book. I don't know what's wrong with me. I just want to dance. That's the problem. <laughs> So here we have it, live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if, you put, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This indebtedness to the Spirit and death to the flesh, you, you need to understand, I love what Dag Hammersgold said, uh, he was the Swedish diplomat that served as Secretary General of the United Nations, died tragically um, in a plane accident. He wrote a really beautiful book called Markings that was released after his um, death. This was like back in the, I think, late 60s, early 70s. Um, but I love this quote from Mark. He said, your life is without foundation if in any matter you choose on your own behalf. Your life is without foundation if within any matter you choose on your own behalf. That's a, how hard is, that's a hard word. You know how the disciples would say to Jesus, they, you know, they're leaving because your teachings are hard. And Jesus says, well, do you guys want to go as well? And what was Peter's response? Lord, where shall we go? You alone hold the words of life. That is the surrendered life. That's exactly what Jesus is looking for. We daily die to ourselves by saying yes to him. That's the good death. It's not us crucifying ourselves. It's just surrendering to Jesus and allowing the spirit to do his deadly work in our lives so that we can live in the power of resurrection life. And this is why Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The motivating factors in life will be defined by what spirit we are surrendered to. 
What are you motivated by? Whatever you are motivated by will give you insight into what spirit you are surrendered to. Are you surrendered to the spirit of the age? Or are you surrendered to the spirit of God? Because the spirit of God will put you on a trajectory that is going against the streams of existence. Secondly, not only do we need to be indebted to the spirit so that we can be free from the control of the flesh, and obviously we live in sinful bodies with sinful minds, and even as we are born again and we surrender to the spirit, we're still mixture. And I don't want us to lose sight of that. This isn't about creating a ladder towards some sort of spiritual perfectionism because you will never reach that. Um, the, in fact, the closer you get to Jesus, the more fully you can't come into the light without the light revealing more and more what kind of darkness still lies within us. And this is why his mercies are new every day. Um, I often think one of the signs of growth is actually an ever increasing recognition of your own brokenness and why you so desperately need Jesus to help you. Uh, but I love this. We are secondly adopted by the Spirit and freed from fear. And, and I think that unless we understand who we are in Christ, we will still be consumed with the fear of man. We will still be consumed with the fear that, that is, is in the air. And the fear that is in the air of the world right now is, is palpable. Uh, look what it says. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, I love that, led. The, the Spirit is not, the, the Spirit-filled life is, is not a stationary existence. It's not static. The Christian life is a life of movement. It is, a, it is moving by increasing degrees of intimacy that there should be growth. There is no static position, I've often said in the Christian life. You're either drifting from Jesus or you're moving closer to him. And often if you're as crazy as I am, you're doing both of those things in the same day. <laughs> and so be of good cheer. This is why we need one another. Honestly, the mixture of, of the individual experience as Christians is why the church is a non-negotiable because it's when the whole community of faith is together that we begin to fill in each other's gaps. We all have the spirit of God, but we also still have strongholds of the flesh. It's when we come together that the spirit of God is able to utilize us together to more fully reveal Jesus. We need all of you. I need all of you. I, I don't reflect Jesus without you. In fact, I would say any compelling moment of preaching is because the body of Christ is together and we are, we are spirit-filled people that where the spirit is revealing to us together the presence of the living Christ. And that's why preaching during COVID into a camera was so difficult. And people would even say it didn't feel like, it didn't seem like you were a preacher during that time. It seemed like you were giving lectures because preaching to me demands uh, the community of faith together, seeking the living Christ. It's, it's not about me. It's not even about you. It's about him as we come together around him. Um, and so I love this. He says, those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Um, Abba Father is, is a phrase that would speak of deep intimacy. It's like a little child. I mean, it would be accurate. It'd be accurate, like how intimate like kids are when they call 
they call their mom or their father um, mama or mommy or daddy. Now, I just want to say, I did have this experience as a new believer um, touring, uh, I was touring in the South, and I'll never forget the first time it happened. There was this, there was this big this big man who was just like a very rugged looking man, young, young guy, probably like 20, much younger than me at the time, like probably like 21, 22, and his name was Bubba. And he wanted us to circle up and pray. And he, and he just opened up and he's just like, daddy. And I'm like, I'm not okay with that on any level. I am not okay with that. <laughs> and then the girl like followed up that's right, Papa. I'm like, where am I right now? What is happening? <laughs> Irreverent. And then my father goes, I like to call him the big fella. I'm like, you know what? I'm not here to judge. <laughs> so, and, and, and I remember being like, please don't. And so the only reason I share that with you is that if I pray with you at a prayer meeting, don't, please don't call him daddy in front of me. You can do it privately. It's personal bias. I will judge you and I feel bad about it and you'll make me sin even though you're being biblical. <laughs> so, I, but, I, but I, I actually, Bubba was right. There is a picture of intimacy uh, here that speaks of a childlike faith in God as a, as, as a good, gentle father who loves us, who cares for us, who's with us and for us. And this comes because we are adopted, and the adoption is the role of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit coming into us regenerates us in a way that we are now in Christ, and Christ is in us by His Spirit. This is why to be born again is to be placed into a position by which the Father views you as the Son. That's what it says. You notice that it says... Um, it says, brought about your adoption to sonship. It doesn't say sonship and daughtership. And it's not because there's some sort of, uh, some sort of agenda here. It's because all men and women are one in Christ and the Father sees you with the same privilege that he has bestowed upon his one and only son. And that is a beautiful and powerful picture. And when we actually realize that while we were dead in our sins, that God sent his son and that Jesus died for us. I think one of the challenges for, for many of you who have grown up in the church and don't actually have any kind of clear line of demarcation of when you went from death to life, because each one of us, if you were truly born again, there was a point when you were dead and there was a point when you became alive, truly alive. But many of us, because our whole life is marked by walking in the church, walking with Christ, we don't have that recollection. I think it's often one of the few benefits, honestly, of being a, a, a person who came to faith later in life is that I remember what it was like to be dead. And I really know what it's like to be alive. And, and honestly, I often question whether I was truly alive until I've now walked long enough with the Lord, 21 years, that I can look back and I see the transformation, the change. Not that we're not without glitches. Not that there isn't hiccups and bumps and you know, the, the Christian life is not just this smooth trajectory. It's more like loop-de-loops, it seems like. I feel like I'm somersaulting toward heaven sometimes. But this, this power of the adoption of the Spirit is that the thing that actually gave me the confidence to begin to actually be a witness to Jesus was knowing that I was loved and falling in love with Jesus. 
It was when I fell in love with Jesus that I could no longer not talk about Jesus. And I think that we don't understand that the Spirit of God alone can birth within us something that is not natural to the human heart, and that is agape love. And when that agape love, when grace grabs a hold of your soul, it begins to eradicate fear. And this is one of the things, and sadly, I just have to share a a moment in the flesh last night. Darcy and I got in a really dumb fight, and it was all my fault, so baby, I totally take responsibility. Um, But it it was over masks. Uh, because I just get fired up. Like, I'm like, I'm like, everywhere in Portland, you see these signs that say, we believe in science. They love those signs. They love, and that, that particular statement is like, a, is like a poke at Christianity, by the way. We believe in science, which all you dumb, you know, superstitious people clearly don't believe in. <laughs> um, which I prefer the new sign I just saw recently that said, I believe in Bigfoot. Um, it was in someone's yard, which is really funny. It was kind of crass, but it was pretty funny. Uh, but, it, but I'm like, you don't believe in science because the CDC says if you've been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. Even the most, the most cautious human being in America, Governor Brown, said you don't have to wear a mask <laughs> inside or outside. So I continually test the water. I go into stores and I'm like, I'm mad about it. And so I have a blatant disregard for protocol. I've been told that, I understand it. And so I walk in and I wait for them to tell me to put it on so that I can ask the question, why? I'm vaccinated, do you wanna see my card? They're like, they don't even wanna see your card. So I tell my wife, I tell my kids this and they they get kind of upset at me and I, I, I sort of react to it. And then Darcy's like, why do you need to do that? And then I, I, just, blew, I, just, I just had to publicly apologize, Darcy, for the, the fight. I'm really, I'm really sorry about that. But you guys were wrong. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> and, you know, the, the, thing, the thing that Darcy's like, I agree with you. There's a way that we can hold to the truth and be confident and courageous without being jerks. There's ways that we can be a people that have a strong conviction that this life is not all that there is. You know what works me up, honestly, the thing that's actually at the root of it for me is that we are blindly missing the fact fear has so captivated our culture and honestly, it's captivated a lot of people in the church. It doesn't give me a right to ever be not kind or to, be, to lash out at anyone, especially my wife or my kids. Um, and, and I think that that shows the sad reality is that even a good desire can quickly become a, a moment by which the flesh gains control. But the fact is, is that I see people, especially in the church, captivated by fear, afraid of things that they can't see, when the fact is, is that if COVID doesn't kill you, something will, because everybody dies. It has been appointed once for man to die, then the judgment. And all I know is that life is short. And when I hear people talking about like, we gotta protect our kids and there's only two kids under 19 in Oregon that have died from COVID and there's 116 kids that died of suicide last year, that upsets me. And it tells me that we have a deep problem in the churches that we have drank the Kool-Aid and we believe that we should be captivated by fear when people are struggling emotionally. They are, they are dying on the vine, kids are, are depressed. They are, they are, they're lonely. People all around us are lonely and neighbors are coming to Door of Hope like never before. And yet so many of you that call Door of Hope your home church that are watching from the comfort of your home still have not even stepped foot in the church yet 
while we have all these people coming to see if this Jesus thing might help them in a time of trial, and yet Christians are still functioning in fear, and I, think, I don't think there's a place for it. It doesn't mean that we're not to be cautious. It doesn't mean that we're to be stupid or cavalier, and it definitely doesn't mean that we're to be jerks. But it means that we're to have a compassionate, calm, gracious belief that the best is yet to come. That Jesus didn't come to free us from our difficulties or our trials or our tribulations. He came to be with us in the midst of them. And that we as a church need to reflect the calm confidence that Jesus is in control today more than ever. And I think here's the thing is that in Portland, this is driven, it's so, everything is so politicized, everything is so, is so hypersensitive that people are afraid of offending. But we need to understand, we don't need to be offensive for the wrong reasons. Darcy's right, I don't need to just go into a store to be offensive for the sake of offending people. That's not a very, that isn't how you be a witness. But at the same time, I still have to be amongst people if I'm gonna be a witness. And so there's this balance of letting the Spirit lead and letting the Spirit truly show us, bringing us back together. I think the most essential thing is that we need to come back together as a church. This is a time, we're on the cusp, guys, we're so close. We're like at 67% vaccination, so I mean, literally within a few weeks, masks are gonna be dropped, and I think we're gonna start coming back to norm. But here's the thing that I believe COVID has done. It didn't show us something new. It just uncovered what was always there. And after a year of not going to church, it's become increasingly easy to not come. And many of you that are watching from home aren't coming just because it's convenient not to. And I'm telling you right now, we need one another. We need one another. The gospel is about a spirit-filled community that are committed to Jesus and committed to people. And I think that this uh, is indeed the desire uh, that we have to understand, that we have to share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, which brings me to the final point, assured by the spirit and glorified in suffering. In verses 16 and 17, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. There's that picture of sonship. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. The gospel is not about creating for us a stress-free existence. The gospel is not about God creating for us a a a pain-free existence. The gospel is about giving us new life in Christ, and Christ wants to use us in a fallen world to bring that same hope to people, which will inevitably mean that we are going to come into contact with suffering, and that we ourselves are going to suffer. But the power of this is that when we have the assurance that the Holy, of the Holy Spirit, and that's when people ask me, is it possible to know that I am saved? And I would say, according to scripture, yes. That the spirit of God, there is a supernatural birth and that the spirit comes to assure us that we indeed are children of God. It is why throughout church history, people have been willing to burn at the stake 
to go into, do you think about the, going into the Colosseum and the great persecutions under Nero, entire families devoured by wild animals? If anyone's ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll see that it would require a supernatural presence to withstand the kind of suffering that Christians have had to withstand throughout its, the church's history. And they were willing to go to these go into these places and be confronted with the reality of death. The, 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 the history even of Peter himself, who when he was going to be crucified for his following of Jesus, he said, not like my Lord. And so they crucified him upside down. We're probably not gonna experience being crucified for following Jesus, but we can't even endure someone making fun of us for our belief in Jesus. And why would we be ashamed of the one who actually brought life to us? Is it possible that the enemy has lied to us? Because when we hide Christ from the world, what we ultimately end up doing is hiding Christ from ourselves. Because Jesus becomes the most real in our lives when we actually become his hands and feet, when we actually become his mouth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, which means that we can do good deeds, but those deeds need to be connected to the one that we are called to herald, to introduce people to the king. Because you never know when someone's gonna be like, I need that. Lots of people need it. Everybody needs it, not everyone knows it. And the thing is, is that we don't know who will or will not respond, and it's not our responsibility to save people, it's just our responsibility to be witnesses to who Jesus is. And when we actually are willing to do that, and to step out in faith and begin to do it, what we will see is that the assurance of the Spirit actually is in direct correspondence to allowing the Spirit to sanctify our lives. And in the assurance of the Spirit, as we step into the suffering of humanity, it is when we suffer for Jesus that we actually begin to feel the weight of glory. Paul's word, play on words, the lightness of affliction is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. Think about glory weighing on us with just an unbelievable sense. It's like D.L. Moody crying out, God's state, when he felt the presence of God so fully, he said, please, Lord, still your hand lest I die under it. I want to feel God's presence like that in my life. So are we willing to pray that dangerous prayer that we might be a people that are not only filled with the Spirit but led by the Spirit? Are we willing to say, Lord, I surrender to you. I live with an obligation to you, not to the flesh. You are Lord, and I ask that you would do whatever it takes to make me a man, a woman, after your heart, so that we can experience the weight of glory. For friends, the best is yet to come. The days are dark, and we are closer today to Jesus' return than we were yesterday. And the fact is, is that the hope of, of every generation is meant to believe that Jesus could return at any moment. And society is moving at a pace that cannot sustain, sustain itself. And there is more uncertainty than ever before, which also means that the people are more open to the gospel than ever before. And we can't afford to sit on our hands and keep our mouths shut. We have to live out the very grace that we ourselves have received. It's not meant to be brought in. 
and then go stale. It's meant to be brought in and given away so that we can be daily filled every day and give it away every day. Jesus loves you. On your worst day, he's crazy about you. The flesh is a, is a real enemy. It's why we need one another and it's why we need the spirit of God upon us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its transformation. I thank you for the ways that you empower us, the ways that you fill us, the ways that you draw us to yourself. My prayer right now is that we would recognize that we have not been left alone. Just like my mom bringing me comfort in a time of great fear by telling me that there was a guardian angel watching over me. Lord, how much more so for those of us who have put our trust in you and have received your spirit Holy Spirit, you are a true helper, a true comforter. And yet, you will again and again redirect our attention to Jesus. Thank you that we worship and serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That your oneness flows out of your perfect communion. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, would you point us to Jesus? And Jesus, would you once again bring us to the throne of the Father that we might know that we are your children. We love you, we need you. And we pray your protection over this community. We pray for your empowerment and we do pray that you would do whatever it takes to make us men and women after your own heart. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.